Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, there's already been so much truth spoken this morning and that uh, you are the truth. You are the source of truth and you embody all truth. We pray that the truth that we've heard and has will indeed set us free, make us free. I pray that as we open up this this scripture, this story, this account of your apostle, uh, that we would uh, be further free and further enabled and further gifted and motivated to be those people that are your people in the earth. Let the, let the word of God come alive to us today. Let each one of us hear something and see something that we could not have heard or seen without the work of your Holy Spirit. So visit us today by that voice that we listen for. I pray in the name of Jesus, everyone said. I thought that uh, last Sunday was going to be the end or the last uh, part of this unofficial series that we've been doing about encounters and engagements. And uh, I was actually beginning to prepare something else for today. And uh, I just felt like the Lord directed me and said, no, we got one more engagement, one more divine appointment that we need to take a look at. And if you want to turn uh, to Acts chapter 17, We'll be going there in a moment. And uh, I will say, uh, now the Lord, uh, I leave the liberty and room for the Lord to change, but I think that not, obviously this coming Sunday is anniversary Sunday, and my brother, your brother, Chuck Groover, will be bringing the word that day. And uh, But I'm thinking two weeks from today, if, if all, all everything goes the same, I may talk about what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. Um, what, and another interesting thing I was thinking about when Don was talking is, uh, I don't listen to a lot of, uh, Christian radio, but I do listen to some. And sometimes I scan around and see what everybody's talking about. And a few weeks ago, I, I marveled every, every speaker that I turned to, whether they were what we consider charismatic or spirit filled or whether they were Baptist, it didn't matter. They were all talking about the Holy Spirit. Every time I'd change, I'd change over to, what's the guy in Dallas? Jeffers, Jeffries, Robert Jeffries, talking about the Holy Spirit. Michael Youssef in Atlanta, turned over to him, talking about the Holy Spirit. David Jeremiah, what was he talking about? Talking about the Holy Spirit. I went, what is this, Lord? I mean, like, I bet five or six different speakers from different flows in the streams of body of Christ, they were all talking about the Holy Spirit. And then, lo and behold... We have revival of the Holy Spirit in, in camp, on campuses primarily, but obviously that spreads. And so maybe two weeks from today we'll talk about what, what does it look like um, when the Holy Spirit shows up. But today we're talking about engaging the culture. Engaging the culture. And so we'll look in a moment at this story with the Apostle Paul and we, as bearers of the good news, and that's us, that's you, that's me, we will find ourselves in places of engagement with the world culture. And, of course, we're, when we say engaging with the culture, we're speaking of engaging with the world culture. 
Now, I hope long gone is the idea that as Christians, we should escape the culture, run off and hide in a mountain somewhere or hide in a cave and pretend there is no culture and that we would have adopted the kingdom mentality, which is to engage with the culture. Um, and once we engage, how shall we respond and communicate with what is basically a foreign entity? When you look at the principles of the world culture, the ideas, the value system that is in place, the fact is, it, to you and to me, it's a foreign entity. Uh, we're strangers. We're aliens and strangers been joined together. We are in some ways, sojourners on the earth from a different king. Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. Well, if you're a part of his kingdom, you're, you're out of this world too. And you go home and say, the pastor said, I was out of this world. So anyway, and we will see in this, the, the shrewd strategy of Paul. And I want you to latch on to this. And while we're talking about, this is a story about Paul visiting Athens I found it no coincidence today that Nashville and Middle Tennessee is called the Athens of the South. Don't miss that. I think there's something prophetic there that we need to, we need to render and grasp that as we are talking about Athens in the Bible, in Greece, how much of that are we talking about Middle Tennessee as well. Acts chapter 17, and we're just going to start reading in verse 16. I am going to read um, through uh, verse 34, which is the end of the chapter. Uh, and so if you can and wouldn't mind standing, I am reading today from the New King James Version. And it reads this way. Now, when Paul waited for them, and I'll come back to that. At Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, and that would be Mars Hill, by the way, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. They thought that was a compliment. But anyway, for as I was passing through and considering the object of your worship, I, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined 
their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of the dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring or children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, everybody say now, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Diocinus, the Ariacobagite, that's easy for you to say, a woman named Damaris and others with him. You can be seated. It's interesting to note, how did Paul get to Athens? Well, when we left, when we left Paul last week, the last words we saw were, they encouraged them and departed. They left. And so they went, uh, by way of a couple of other places, they went to Thessalonica and, uh, began to preach the word. There were some issues come up and, uh, they had to go hide Paul again and, uh, in the, in the, Previous verses from what we read, it says, uh, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So here's Paul in Athens waiting on Silas and Timothy. So in the meantime, Paul takes a walk around the city. He begins to walk around and observe things, and what does he see? Well, he sees the condition of Athens in that they were considered to be the intellectual center and the university of the entire world. In other words, the brightest minds in the world would be gathering in Athens. This was a... This was the peak of intellectualism. This was the peak of science. This was the peak of literature in Athens. As he walked around this city and began to observe uh, what different parts of the city carried, uh, some believe, there's no documentation for this, but some believe there were as many as 30,000 idols in the city of Athens. There were at least... 3,000 statues alone in that city. And so Paul is walking around and he sees this. Luke, Luke writes in some versions that the city was full of idols or it was submerged in idols. It was swamped in idols. Petronius was a satirist in Nero's court and he said, in Athens it was easier to meet a god than a man. Because it was such a an idol-filled place. Someone wrote, what an incredible irony that the intellectual capital of the world 
was also filled with dumb idols about which the psalmist declared uh, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but can't see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. <coughs> Excuse me. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. What an irony that this place of intelligence would embrace dumb idols who couldn't do anything except just sit there and in most cases not even look pretty. Well, once again, if you'll allow me to uh, plagiarize myself from the 2005 Kernels of Truth, which is, I think, volume seven in the books, our society is more like the Athenian culture than we care to admit. We are certainly religious in all aspects. Would you agree? And he said that about them. We have no shortage of philosophers and thinkers searching for something new. And while they may not be made of stone or metal, we have set up idols that either replace God or dilute our worship to him. We worship such idols as success, achievements, entertainment, recreation, social position, and material gain. How many of you understand there's nothing wrong with any one of those things? Because I know people, they think it's either or. Okay, I can either enjoy entertainment or, it, or it's the devil. It's none of the above. It's what, what do we regard? What do we give ourselves to? What do we worship? We also put people in places of idolatry, and many times our possessions become the thing to which we give our passion and affection. Thus, we too live in a culture that sometimes, in a religious overture, will set up an altar to an unknown God, desiring to keep him unknown so that he doesn't upset the apple cart of our lives. While many in our day know of God and maybe even think they have compartmentalized to suit him, they really are giving some token gesture to a God who is, in fact, unknown to them. There are a lot of people who would say they know God or know about God or my grandma read the Bible, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but in the end of the day, in many cases, the God that people think they know is not the God of the Scripture. And so the Scripture says that as Paul walked around this city, it says he was provoked. It said that his spirit was grieved and he was roused to anger. Something stirred up inside of Paul. Now, as I read this again, I thought to myself, well, this is Athens. This is a, a godless, and many, you know, there's a synagogue there. We know that. And, but this is basically a godless city, any city that would allow 30,000 idols to be erected and, and to begin to <clears throat> do the things they did. But why would he care about this city? Why would he be angry? Why would he be roused in his spirit about this city? Now, some of you, now I don't want you to raise your hand, but you know it's true. Some of you, and maybe the guy up here too, have said about some cities in our country, well, that we'd be better off if they just burned that one to the ground. And don't, don't tell me that some of you and some of you watching online haven't said if California would just drop off in the ocean, we'd be a lot better off. Don't tell me you hadn't thought that. Because we have. 
And if I'm the only one, Lord help me. Paul had a concern for this city. What was it? Well, if he was a fatalist or if he was an escapist, he wouldn't have cared. If he was just wanting to get out of here and let the devil have the world, he would not have cared what was going on in Athens. But he was neither. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. He understood what we need to understand, and that is that the earth is, everybody say all. All. The earth is all the Lord's. Or we could say all the earth is the Lord's. And every, everybody say everything. Everything it contains. There's nothing upon the face of this terrestrial ball that does not belong to God. Now, some of the things that belong to him have been perverted and twisted, and yet they still belong to him. Paul, in engaging with these folks in Athens, came face to face with pluralism. Pluralism pluralism is not uh, something that they dealt with that we don't. But pluralism says... It requires many different sources of truth to adequately complete our society. Pluralism denies the existence of a single universal truth. Pluralism says there are many ways to God. Always, anybody doing anything good finds their path to God. And of course, pluralism is a lie. I thought I might get amen there, but okay. How many of you understand that in our culture, we're still dealing with that today? There is no many ways to God. There's one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. And so Paul wanders into the synagogue, which was his custom, and he began to share with the folks there. And... It says that he reasoned daily to those who happened to be there. It's those who happened to be daily, he said. We have a hard time going to church once a week. He went every day. And as he began to reason to in the synagogue, he attracted the attention of these Epicureans and Stoics. Now, the Epicureans were uh, high-minded rationalists. Um, and they didn't believe God was involved in in the in world at that time. So their God was their appetite. And I'm not talking about just food. Anything, we know what the, our appetite can do. The Stoics were similar. They extolled this, the, the idea of having virtue. But they denied human responsibility. And they certainly denied a future judgment that you would be judged according to what you did or didn't do. These were very intelligent people. You don't sound intelligent, I know, but they were very intelligent people. And they they wound up in the synagogue, and, they, and he attracted their attention in this pluralism. And Paul, at that moment, was looking directly into the face of the wisdom of Socrates and Plato. He was engaging with a culture that was not the culture of the kingdom of God. He could have run. He could have said, I'm going to go wait in the cave till Silas and Timothy get here. 
But he directly, pointedly engaged with these folks. And so they they said, well, this is so interesting. Let's bring him to Mars Hill. Let's bring him to the Areopagus, which in the, it was a place, it was just a rock, but it was a place where uh, the, they held a tribunal of the Judicial and Legislative Council of, a- of Athens. This is where they gathered the governmental figures, legislative figures. They gathered there. And so they brought him there and said, listen to what this guy's saying. And look at what verse 21 does to describe these folks. It says, for all the Athenians and the fo- foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Tell or to hear some new thing. Well, Paul was very intelligent. Paul says to them, I was walking around the city and all these idols, and I found one that had the inscription on it to the unknown God. All the places in town, he happens, happens, everybody say happens. <clears throat> it's kind of like what Deb was talking about. No accident that Paul walked up on this, this inscription to the unknown God. Watch what Paul does. Now, we don't know, we don't have, we have no evidence whatsoever that this particular stone was erected about our God. We don't know that. We just know that somebody erected an idol and wrote on it, etched on it, whatever, to the unknown God. That's all we know. Paul made this unknown God his God. If he's unknown, he can be anybody. If he's unknown, you can declare he's anybody you want him to be. And Paul says, I'm going to make him my God. Thus, he said, he said he could make him known to them, this unknown God. Y'all don't know? This unknown God. You worship him in ignorance. Remind me of the story. The guy said, going to the conference, and they said, well, um, what do you think is the biggest problem in our world, apathy or ignorance? And he said, I don't know. I don't care. I'll come back to that. Not that, but the... He begins to, he begins to talk to them in verse 24. He says, God, this unknown God that you don't know anything about, he made the world. God made the world. And this unknown God that you don't know anything about, we can't worship him with hands because he needs nothing. This God that you got unknown God on there. This God is the giver of life and breath and all things. This God determined the pre-appointed times and places of your habitation. You think you're here because uh, you, you got a piece of property that was nice. You think you live where you live because you you were in control and you liked the neighborhood. But he says, the God, the unknown God that you're worshiping, that you don't know who he is, he's the one that determines pre-appointed times. He's the one that determines places of habitation. And then he says, he has made, well, anyway, 
so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. That they should, this unknown God, folks, that you are worshiping, God want, this God wants you to search for him. And I've got you the Granger translation here, and I'm not going to charge you any extra for it. It just says that you should reach out to him and verify his existence by contact. Reach out to this unknown God and verify his existence by contact. And he says, he is not far from each one of us. Now, I think that there's a possibility here that he is subtly saying to these folks, these progressive thinkers that he's talking to, to try to go try and verify contact with any of those pieces of rocks out there and metal they had built. Go out there and try to engage with that stone, with that piece of metal, with that piece of wood that can't talk, see, hear, and any of the above. Go out there. And, I don't, He didn't say that, but he's saying to them, this God wants you to seek him. This God wants you to, to search for him. This God wants you to verify his existence by contact. In other words, this God is alive. And then the final dagger in their pluralistic philosophy, he says to them in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. For in him we live and move. You know what's interesting about that statement? It was written by a guy named Epimenides, who was a poet of their day. And he wrote those words, in him we live and move and have our being. He wrote those words. Of course, he was referring to Zeus. But Paul reaches into the library of Epimenides and pulls this quote out and changes the hymn to a capital H hymn. In him we live and move and have our being. They heard, they've heard that many times. That was not a new word to them. And yet he's saying, this guy, this God, is whom, in whom him we live. In him we move. In him we have our being. In him we find our very existence. And then he goes in the next statement. There's a poet of that day called Aratus who said this, for we are also his offspring. Or children. Once again, he was not talking about Yahweh God, but, but Paul reached into his library and pulled that quote out and said, we are his offspring. Now, you don't know, these people's minds were just going, whoop, what is this? He's quoting our poets in a way we've never heard them quoted before. Well, that's what I call the shrewdness of Paul. In Luke 16, we're not turning, but Jesus commended the shrewdness of the unjust steward. And sometimes we have a hard time understanding that. But just suffice it to say, the shrewdness that was exhibited by him was commended by Jesus. And what did Jesus do as he engaged with the culture? 
First and foremost, he contextualized the message. He contextualized. He spoke to them where they lived. He spoke to them where they were. I mean, Jesus did the same thing with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He walks down the Sea of Galilee. He finds them mending their nets, and he begins to talk with them. Now, he could have said, now, if you'll come with me, uh, we're going to go over the hillside, and we're going to learn how to plant seed and grow crops. But what were those four men by trade? So he says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What was he doing? He was contextualizing his message to where they lived. Paul did the same thing. As I've already alluded to, he quoted their poets to them. I mean, how can you argue with them if he's quoting your poets? He quoted their poets. And this is not new to Paul. In his letter to Titus, he quoted Epimenides again, which said, because Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Do you get the distinct impression that Epimenides didn't care for the Cretans? Liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. But he also quoted a Greek comedy called Thais in his first letter to the Corinthians, which said, bad company corrupts good morals. I think we're seeing a pattern here. We can take the vernacular of the day and move that over into the kingdom arena and use it to describe what's going on. And then you contextualize what you're saying in such a way they understand what you're talking about. And what I'm saying, is, and you've heard it before, is that we're not, what we're not offering is Christianese. If you walked up to a person engaging with the culture and a person outside the kingdom of God, and especially someone who hasn't been raised in the church, and you say to them that uh, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for your sins. And you start, I mean, what? There'd be smoke. There's no reason to do that. And using words that you and I would seem familiar, we have to understand that there's some people who don't get that. I mean, what is this world coming to? I asked the young pharmacist at Publix the other day, how come Publix doesn't carry sunbeam bread? You know what he told me? I've never heard of sunbeam bread. <laughs> so if I'm going to talk to that young man about bread, there's no reason for me to use the word sunbeam. Even though I could tell him that little Miss Sunbeam is a pretty little girl. But anyway, that's another thing. But here's another thing he did. He, he assumed a posture of believing that they had pure intentions. Now, here's where sometimes we, we want to beat people up and make them feel bad. But he's assuming this posture. He said, what you worship without knowing or what you worship in ignorance, I'm going to tell you about. Now, we understand that ignorance is not always stupidity. The young pharmacist up here at Publix is ignorant to sunbeam bread. He's obviously fairly intelligent or they wouldn't let him be the pharmacist. I wouldn't let him give me my medicine. 
but he's ignorant to the topic of sunbeam bread, which still blows my mind. But Paul said, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you don't know about this God, and you have pure intentions. And so he goes, he goes ahead and he makes a distinction between the idols and the one true God. Between the idols. That, you know, these, this God cannot be worshipped with hands. In other words, you can't make this God. And he makes a statement. If that's for me, tell him I'll be done in just a few minutes. He makes a statement that says, God is not made with hands. As a matter of fact, he made the hands. He's not a God who is made with hands, but he made the hands who are doing the making. And I'm sure they had to ponder that one a while. This is the God. This is this unknown God that you don't know anything about. And yet now you do. And the, and the, one of the most important parts is he portrayed God as accessible. He strongly encourages us to seek him and to verify his existence by contact because he said he is not far from each one of us. One of the things that is unique about our God, the God, the one and only true God, is that he is accessible. You can go down the list of all of the other so-called gods. I'm not even going to call their names. But you go down all the list of all of those who call themselves gods or are worshipped as gods, and you can find that they are not accessible, what our God is. Not only is our God accessible, he wants us to access him through the Holy Spirit, through prayer. Again, I repeat my paraphrase that you should reach out to him and verify his existence by contact. So Paul engages with these folks, high-minded intellectuals, and some, we see at the end of the reading, that some actually, two named people actually convert. Others who are unnamed convert. And Paul leaves behind the seed. But then he doesn't stop there. He comes to this place near the end of his talk to them, and he says, okay, Times of ignorance have been overlooked in the past. Your ignorance, your, your not knowing has been overlooked, but I just did you a favor. You are no longer ignorant to this unknown God. I just got through telling you all about him. Oops. Mm-hmm. Turn or burn, that's right. That's verse uh, 23 and a half, I think. He said, the times... Of ignorance that were overlooked, they're gone now. We, you said it before, but say it again. Now. Okay, wake up. Now. There we go. Now he commands all. There's that word again. Greek word for all means all. Now he commands all men and women everywhere. Isn't that great? All men and women, everywhere. By my math, that leaves no one out. Pretty well covers the gamut. 
to repent. This means you. <laughs> Everywhere. And so he's saying this to, to this group of people. And then he says this, there is an appointed day for God to judge the world in righteousness. God will judge the world in righteousness. Now, you're no longer ignorant. God's no longer overlooking your ignorance. God is commanding everyone everywhere to repent. This means you. And so he has appointed a day for God to judge the world in righteousness. And the standard for that judgment is will be the man, capital M, whom he has ordained. The man that he has ordained is the standard. He is the one by which God will judge the world. And the assurance of that is that God raised that man from the dead. None of the other gods... None of the other 30,000 gods throughout the city of Athens had ever come back from the dead. The unknown God has come back from the dead in the form of Jesus, the Son of God. He's bringing them to a place of repentance. Engaging in the midst of, engaging with the culture And you and I have plenty of opportunities to do varying degrees of this in varying places. Some have the fortune of being able to go into the halls of justice in places and and share. It doesn't matter if it's the halls of justice or just the halls of the classroom. We have the opportunity. Micah 5 says, Then the remnant of Jacob, which is Israel, shall be in the midst of many peoples. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples. So where do you think God intends for the remnant of Jacob, which by birth, by spiritual birth, is you and me, all those who are, who belong to Jesus Christ are the seed of Abraham. Where do you think we belong in the midst of many peoples? In the midst of the Gentiles. Now, in this, in, in our, for our purposes, the Gentiles are all those who are outside the kingdom of God. And he's saying to these folks, now you can no longer be ignorant because I've given you the facts. I've given you this God. And I remember 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And when we engage with the culture, when we engage with folks in our path, when we engage with those that God has <clears throat> divinely appointed for us, In that moment, ultimately, we must say to them, if God is God, follow him. If he's not God, then don't follow him. You you choose. But we do engage. We do find those moments where we find ourselves discussing and sharing with them who this God is. If, If we did nothing else but share what Paul shared 
with those folks that day on Mars Hill. That's enough of the gospel to present and to overcome that ignorance. Amen. Stand with me. Lord Jesus, sometimes we're somewhat intimidated when we see accounts of your servants. And especially this one, when when your apostle finds himself in the middle of the judicial and legislative authorities of Greece and begins to share the truth about what they call an unknown God. And that he began to share this story about you. And ultimately, you were no longer unknown to them when he got through. And your Holy Spirit moved upon some folks that were converted that day. And you only know how many were after that day. Lord God, help each one of us to have the confidence and the the, uh, wherewithal to find our place in that engagement, whether it be in some legislative council or whether it be uh, sitting across the table in a coffee shop or whatever it may be that we could share about that that unknown God to many people who think they know you, but the truth is they don't really know you. And so fill our mouths with those words and and order our footsteps for those divine appointments and let us engage with the culture. And don't let us engage so we can argue, but let us engage so that we can see redemption. Redemption come. Help us today as your people. Lord Jesus, you said your kingdom is not of this world. We declare ourselves a part of that kingdom. And so we draw from a higher place. We draw from higher values, principles, and everything to bring that into our daily life as we go about our business. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the opportunity to offer up various forms of worship today. And we pray that all the things that we've done and said during this time together would bring honor and glory to your name. And for your sake, we pray in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week.